Women of War is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders and acknowledge we live and work on stolen, unceded land. This episode contains references to or discussion of torture, war crimes and atrocities committed by the Bolsheviks, the Red Army and Stalin, mass executions, starvation, anti-Semitism, frostbite, suicide, imprisonment, exile and murder. It also contains naughty language and may not be suitable for all listeners. The views put forth in this podcast are not representative of our employers. All efforts have been made to ensure the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. However, with the nature of historical research, there may be mistakes or inconsistencies. This episode was written and recorded before the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022. <laughs> Welcome to season three. <laughs> what, what a fun note to get things more started women, with. More women, more war. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, who are you? I'm Hannah. Hi! I am a historian and PhD student uh, writing about women who protested nuclear weapons in Australia in the 1950s and 1960s. That sounds fascinating. I still hope within a year or two we get to read that delicious little thesis of yours, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Nicola. I am a teacher, but also a historian of masculinity and crime and men with funny goatees. And this is Women of War, Season 3. Three! Uh, we've had a lovely long break, um, but I'm sure you're very glad we're back in your ear holes. Uh, we were going to come back very refreshed and nice and relaxed and very zen. Um, and then Nicola went and got herself a job. I know, what a mistake. I do have a great job, but I will not speak about it any further. Um, and I'm trying to finish a PhD in a global disaster zone. Yeah. So that's fun. Academia, not even once. But we're back. Yes. And Which is the main thing. So we're like we're less refreshed, but we're raring to go. So shall we go? Let's go. Let's go. What are we gonna talk about today, Hannah? Alright, Nicola, well. Today we're gonna talk about one of the most influential women in history. <gasps> this woman made the October slash November nineteen seventeen Russian Revolution possible. You've probably never heard of this woman, as she was so successfully unpersoned by Stalin's later regime that even today today we know very little about her. And there's no one specific work about her, at least not in English. That woman is Alexandra Skos... I didn't practice this. <laughs> Alexandra Sokolovskaya. Alexandra Sokolovskaya. Proud of you, babe. Thank you. Sometimes known under her married name. She's barely a footnote in most books about her more famous first husband. And few images of her have survived the actions of Stalin's regime. So it's because of this that there's far less information than I would like about Alexandra. So we've mushed together what her early life and formative years might have looked like from what we do know and from wider books about what was happening at the time. Um, she, we also look at, you know, histories of the places she lived, which included Ukraine. We know that she was a very strong-willed woman and had a will like iron. She was apparently very charismatic and a calming presence for those in her political sphere, even as the walls closed around them. So, Hannah, what is the first you've ever heard of you ever heard of Alexandra? Like, we could go back to year, ele- year 12 revs again and be like, do you remember learning about his first <laughs> wife? Uh, we could, but I can guarantee I don't. Okay, I, I don't remember anything right at this minute. Are you serious? Not in, like, the six months I was like, hey, guess what I just learned today? <laughs> no, I ignore you yeah. when you talk. Yeah, that's fair. So do you know about any of the women who were involved with Leon Trotsky? One. Yeah, which one? <laughs> Frida Kahlo. Frida Kahlo, yeah. Of course. Kahlo, We've already yeah. discussed the uh, beautiful threesome that could have been... Dear Christ. <laughs> yeah, between uh, Josephine Baker, uh, which we did an episode on, oh, uh, and Leon Trotsky. And Frida Kahlo. And Frida Kahlo. Because Josephine and Frida had a relationship, then Trotsky and Frida. No, Frida. No. Well, it's funny. This is like that inject that sexism you don't realise you're doing. Because I'm like, Josephine and Frida. Trotsky and Frida. Why don't you think his first name? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. That's Baker fair. and Carlo, and then Trotsky and Carlo. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... My extent of the knowledge. So when did you first hear of her, since you actually know what you're talking about? Um, so I remember exactly when I first heard of Alexandra Sokolovskaya. So it was when I did Revs in Year 11, and I was already getting interested in Trotsky, and then was probably in the book, the textbook, a reference of Trotsky, air quotes, abandoning his wife, mm-hmm. quote, end air quote, end air quotes, and spoilers. So then my teacher, who is a really wonderful, she was a really wonderful woman, she still is, I saw at Coles during lockdown. Lovely. So she sent out a whole bunch of extra resources, which included a talk by Mark Steele, who's a British socialist comedian, and he did a whole talk on the Russian Revolution. 
So he basically, in this talk, he does a good talk, very biased, so it's really good to show as a text to show how historians can be very leading one way or the other. <laughs> Lenin did nothing wrong. Okay, Mark. <laughs> so in Mark's talk, he basically implies that Alexandra had very little say in what went down between her and Trotsky, and it annoyed me at the time. Yeah. And it annoys me still. I'm annoyed right now. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, that's basically the first time I heard of her, like, this idea of, oh, he just left Mrs. Trotsky behind. It's like... I don't know. When you marry someone in prison and go into exile with them, clearly you've got more stuff going on than just like, sorry, dear. <laughs> so, like I said, Mark Steele does talk a little bit. He's he. I think he makes too many excuses for Lenin and Trotsky. Mm-hmm. Um, like Stalin was much more, you know, murderous in just sheer numbers and stuff. But he had longer. Um, and it's you know, it's not like there's Stalin and everyone else, or Hitler and everyone else. Yeah, which is usually the one. Yeah. And so, um, Lenin and Trotsky did have a red hot go at committing, you know atrocities against humanity. Um, the phrase mercilessly butchered comes mm. to mind. Though, in their defence, <laughs> which is a brick that should make a wall, but it is a brick, um, that it, a few Jewish people in Russia and the Russian Empire, former territories, did say it was safer to be Jewish under the early Bolshevik regime than at basically any other time in Russia, in living memory, past or future. Mm. Stalin, he really persecuted Jewish people to the point where the Jewish doctor's plot eventually leads up to one of the reasons he may have died so quickly and suddenly mm. um, when he did have a stroke and pissed himself to death. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> Rather. We know a few specifics about the early life of Alexandra Sokolovskaya. You can just call her Alexandra. I'm going to call her Alexandra. There's a lot of Alexandras in this story, and Alexanders. She is going to be the only Alexandra. Sokolovskaya. 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 Yeah. Yeah, okay. We know very few specifics about the early life of Alexandra Sokolovskaya, herein referred to as Alexandra. Alexandra. She was born in 1872 to an unnamed mother and Lev Sokolovsky into a wealthy family with farming connections. She had three siblings, two brothers, Ilya and Grigori, and one sister, Maria, who were all different shades of politically active. From Nicholas' research, it looks like they were perhaps of Jewish heritage from what was then called the Ukraine, probably near a city now known as Dnipro, but at least the region then known... So the region back then was called Ekaterinoslav. Yeah. Yeah. The family may have also had roots in modern Belarus, where the name is common today. Regardless of where they came from, Lev Sokolovsky was sure about where he wanted the world to go. Lev was a Narodnik. Now, what's a Narodnik or Narodniki, Nikola? The Narodnik philosophy had come out of the post-serfdom period. The Narodnik was a political movement that held a form of agrarian socialism, wherein they felt the serfs were being sold into a different form of basically slavery, going from being owned by landowners to being wage slaves to the bourgeoisie. They wanted the peasants to be in control of their own destiny and felt the best system of governance would be for peasants to govern themselves in small village councils or communes. Granted, most of the people coming up with these ideas were rich and well-educated, not peasants by any measure, but, you know, baby steps. This is ringing bells for some reason. (laughs) I don't know why. If you remember our episode on Tsarina Alexandra, the last empress of Russia, you might remember our discussion of the Russian Empire of the late 1800s, in which today's Alexandra was born. The Empire of the Romanovs was a huge anachronism as the rest of Europe and many other areas of the world developed and modernised through the Industrial Revolution. In 1861, Tsar Alexander II II freed the 23 million serfs who had been more or less owned across Russia. Britain's official abolition of slavery in its empire had begun in 1807, and emancipation was more or less achieved by 1843, while serfdom had started more or less dying out even before the Black Death swamped Europe. Prussia, one of Russia's closer neighbours, both geographically and culturally-ish, abolished serfdom in 1807. If you need another perspective, in 1861, the American Civil War started to also end slavery or preserve it. The first Melbourne Cup was held and both Edith Cowan and Eleanor Roosevelt was born. So Russia was late to the modernisation party by almost any way that you want to measure it. Similarly to how the Bolsheviks would later argue the revolution would be led by city-based workers, then the Rodniks felt that the revolution would be made up by the peasantry. However, those peasants couldn't be expected to lead that revolution by themselves, and the Narodniks went off to the countryside to get in touch with the peasants. Silly the peasants! peasants. <laughs> Hello, friend! And the peasants were like, get off my lawn. Hello, fellow peasants! <laughs> so in response to the peasants responding like this, the Narodniks were actually like, oh, valid, which makes them the first and last politicians in history to consider the needs of their constituents. 
In response to this, some of the Narodniks also radicalized and formed Russia's first known revolutionary party, which was known as Narodnaya Volya, or the People's Will. It is also sometimes referred to in older text as the Narodovodsky, but we're not going to say it like that. <laughs> That's, yeah, fair. Like Spear of the Nation later in South Africa. That was Nelson Mandela's, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like Spear of the Nation later in South Africa, the People's Will turned to using terrorism to pressure the government to reform. Unlike Spear of the Nation, they didn't have many qualms about killing people. The Narodniks, when the peasants failed to revolt and overthrow the Tsar, realised they first had to break the almost magical hold the myth of the Tsar and Romanov dynasty had over the Russian peasantry. The Rodnaya Volya did this by assassinating Tsar Alexander II in 1881, which has since been widely regarded as a bad move, as it not only horrified the peasants for its brutality, but also led to the executions of various members of the people's will. And you could argue eventually led to the end of the Romanov dynasty. Yes. Read on and yeah. find out. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm getting my head in my Oh, I'm loving... I think every person we've introduced so far has had the name Alexander or Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> Except Frida Kahlo. Hey, and Josephine Baker. <laughs> Six years later, the terrorist faction of the surviving people's will decided to try again and take out Alexander III. However, they were arrested before they could carry out their plan. One of the instigators of the failed plot included a young man named Alexander, nicknamed Sasha Ulyanov. Sasha's younger brother, best known as Vladimir Lenin, was inspired by his brother's imprisonment and execution to dedicate himself to the revolution. Though they weren't Marxists in the same vein as later Bolsheviks who would take control of Russia during the October Revolution or coup, depending on who you ask, the Narodniks were in many ways the grandfathers of the Russian Revolution, in addition to Marx himself. And Alexandra, the focus of this episode, that <laughs> Alexandra, was introduced to Narodnik ideas by her own father, Lev. Lev further encouraged his children to side with the revolutionaries. So one also has to assume their mother, if she was around, was also a politically motivated person. So they seem to have been a modern family, and Alexandra went to Odessa University, where she was exposed to Marxism, a new political theory that had just begun circulating through Russia by the work of Bakunin and later Plekhanov in translating Marx and Engels' work. So it's kind of funny to think of the introduction of Marxism to Russia occurring so late, as the Communist Manifesto was published in 1848 after the series of uprisings across Europe, and Das Kapital in 1867. The first legal Marxist magazines in Russia were only getting published in the early 1890s, and they were subject to heavy censoring. So Alexandra started uni at the perfect time. So why would Alexandra have been exposed to Marxism here of all places? Well, the Ukraine has long been a vibrant hub, desired by many for its abundant resources. Uh, anyway, and Odessa, like Melbourne, New York, Liverpool and other famous port cities, was wild with people from around the world and all kinds of different ideas. Another reason is the second you step foot on a university campus, you're beset by Marxist groups. Yeah, you have to tuck your pants into your socks. So, fun fact, Dmitry Mendeleev taught at Odessa University and it's still considered one of the great universities in Europe. So perhaps ironically, it was also founded on the order of Tsar Alexander II, whose stubborn refusal to stay alive <laughs> after being assassinated led to all kinds of problems for the Narodnik movement's terrorism arm. It's just very careless of him. I know, he's such a fool. Why can yeah. you see it coming? Yeah. Alexander soon saw sense in the ideals of Marxism, placing the workers in control of the society that benefited from their labour. In many ways, a successor to the Narodnik centering of the Russian peasantry. She soon became one of the few Marxists, presumably, at Odessa University, and presumably one of the very few female Marxists, though she still had her foot firmly in the Narodnik camp. Yeah, that's all we really know. So, time for a diversion. As far as the research tells us, just like how Russia was in a different economic plane to the majority of Western Europe, they were also, well, granted, Russia is also half in Asia. Yeah. They were also on a different <laughs> political plane when it came to gender. Though Alexandra was politically active very much so, as you're about to hear, very few of the women who were active Narodnikis would consider themselves feminists by either contemporary Western European standards or modern standards. As Dr. Susan Carland has spoken of very eloquently, feminism sometimes just isn't the right word in non-Western contexts. Narodniki women saw themselves as the equals of their male comrades, but not in a self-identified feminist way. It's like a genderless thing. And it's like, sure, he's well-versed in leftist <laughs> ideology, but does he do the dishes? So there were many highly active and passionate Narodniki and radical women, including Stefiana Semplowska. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to give you all of these. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Who advocated for prison reform. And Vera Zaslushic, who attempted to assassinate General Fyodor Trepov after he was a political prisoner flogged for refusing to remove his hat. No, 
General no. Trepov had a political prisoner oh. flogged <laughs> because the prisoner was like, fuck you, I'm not taking my hat off Fair. to show respect to you. I wasn't laughing at the assassination for the hat. Assassination for the hat. <laughs> I was just laughing. To be fair, on Gallipoli, I a lot missed of, the point there. A lot of men died on Gallipoli. A lot of the officers died because the snipers would see the nice hat and be like, "Officer, boink!" And then um, look, if he that committed to your uniform, that was a thing that they very quickly learned to take the hats off. Always take care. Yeah, that. good plan. Except if you know, slip, slop, slap, yeah. sunscreen. Yeah. So Vera was angry about this flogging. So. So Vera's motive for trying to kill Trepov was altered. Um much as we saw the same way in Charlotte Corday in season one, from outrage at government mistreatment of prisoners and to further her radical cause, to being a crime of passion. Her <gasps> womb was wandering. Oh, God. Just flopped right out of there. <laughs> the media claimed Vera had shot Trepov because the prisoner had been her lover, and she was distraught because only she was allowed to whip him. Is this a thing, or is this you just... That was just... The last bit was me. I'm sorry. Okay. Did I read that again without the joke? <laughs> Despite, <laughs> Despite Vera and many other strong women in the Narodnik and other radical groups, women tended not to occupy the majority of leadership roles in these groups, even if they were the ones taking action. This is the pool Alexandra was swimming in. Vera would later be released from prison, convert to Marxism, and eventually end up meeting with Lenin and Trotsky. Though Trotsky later reminisced he saw her more as a general radical of the, of the ineffective old school, rather than a specific Marxist. Yeah, so a lot of the research I did has actually come from Trotsky himself, just because he was the only Bolshevik leader to write his mm-hmm. memoirs, because mm-hmm. he wasn't a leader anymore. Yeah. The source The has, source has bias. The source has bias. So, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. 1896, which I'm sure something happened in Australia to show how backwards Russia is, Alexandra has finished, presumably graduated, or not, Odessa University. So I've seen it reported that she studied obstetrics, which seems modern but also appropriate for an educated woman, like female doctor stuff. Yeah. But it also doesn't track with what she did later, but then again, we just don't know. So she's, I mean, getting a job based on your degree always ah, been difficult. Can't relate. She has moved on to, <laughs> by this point, Alexandra is living in what was then called Nikolaev, is now Mikolaev, and she was living as part of a Narodnik gardening commune. They had matching hats and smocks. Oh, this so, is the dream. I have to give this group of gardening uni potential dropouts points as a uni dropout myself. Twice. Once. <laughs> Once. Twice. 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 Yes. But also points for listening to the people they were trying to liberate, as this group of Narodniks was led by a working-class gardener called French Shvgosky, who was originally from what we now call the Czech Republic. Shevgosky and his little group of smock wearers <laughs> would garden by day and read radical literature by night to each other. So these around days, the campfire. Around the campfire. Beautiful. These days were remembered fondly by a teenage member of the group, a 16-year-old Lev Ronstein, though Alexandra's presence in the group went under the disgust in his recollections. So we're not sure how Alexandra came across this group, whether she discovered or her brothers did, because they were also members. We don't know which one figured it out first. Perhaps even it could have been a link from their dad. Yeah. We just don't know. Or maybe she had like a smock that she was wearing. She was at Smocks R Us. Yeah. And they were like, you know where you can wear this smock. <laughs> smocks? I tell you all about the smock wearing. The group also translated, printed, and disseminated radical literature. But there were limits to this method. It's hard to get really solid numbers, as people couldn't fill out a survey for reasons that they're about to become obvious, but peasant literacy rates in pre-Soviet Russia were abominable. It was a similar issue in the cities, as a lot of the urban dwellers had originated in the peasant regions. Though there are many numbers about literacy rates in Russian cities floating around, three cities near to Nikolaev in 1910 reported rates of 28.5, 14.8 and 15.6% overall in their workers. Obviously, it was much more likely for men to be literate than women, so let's be generous and say that in the late 1890s, 23% of workers in and around where Shibkovsky and his little smock party were active were literate. This limited the commune's chances to get the word out without holding symposiums, which were illegal, and more dangerous than simply handing out pamphlets. And that doesn't matter, because Alexandra and the rest of the six-person smock commune... There's only six people there? Yeah, and I think it was six, including her, plus Shvigotsky. Damn! Yeah. It's a small commune. Yeah, it's a small commune. Realise that sitting in a garden, reading radical literature, and giving out pamphlets to people who couldn't read (laughs) probably wasn't going to do much. So instead, this is such an early 20s thing. It actually is. It's so funny. 
Instead, they decided to form a university for the workers, including access to a library of radical writing. Each commune member would become a lecturer of sorts in a subject. And these are all, like, late <laughs> teens, early 20s. Like, what do they know? It's like starting a podcast <laughs> today. <laughs> so, um, each commune member would become a lecturer of sorts in a subject. We don't know what Alexandra lectured in. I assume it was something to do with women's issues, just because even later with the Bolsheviks, they're like, women are in charge of the family stuff, mm-hmm. the more gentle, air quotes, stuff. But her older brother, I'm pretty sure it was Grigori, he was meant to lecture on the French Revolution and, quote, became confused as soon as he began and promised to deliver his lecture in writing. Of course, he failed to fulfill his promise and that was the end of the enterprise. Damn, Grigori. End quote. Damn, Grigori. You good, bro? (laughs) He's fine. I'm Grigori. (laughs) Lev Bronstein himself, then about 17, became a lecturer in sociology (laughs) before running out of material in two lectures. Oh, God, this is a train wreck. It's beautiful. This is so early 20s leftists. I can't look away. Bronstein and Grigori would later sequester themselves to write what sounds like a truly terrible play to bring (laughs) people over to the side of Marxism, which they never finished. (sighs) Disappointing. I want to see that play. So, back to Alexandra. She ended up leaving the blue-smocked commune, perhaps sick of the hats, we don't know, or the sausage fest, which is quite valid, and took a few of the members with her. How many members would there be left? Well, I'm assuming she took three. So she's taken, <laughs> including herself, So she's, she's taken more four. than half of yeah. the commune. It's a bit unclear. I don't know if this commune, like, spun and, like, expanded to include themselves in the wider Marxist yeah. movement. Whereas it could be, like, uh, there's six key members, but there's other hangers-on. I think that's more yeah, likely that would make as sense. well. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, so anyway, she took a few of the members with her, having converted them to Marxism. This included her brothers and probably Lev Bronstein, the artist going to be known... As trust. <gasps> I bet you didn't see that coming. <laughs> oh. The Splinter Group didn't just keep disseminating radical literature. They began to write their own pamphlets and print them. Not even knowing of the existence of typewriters, Bronstein recalled printing his letters with utmost care, taking two hours per page, so even those with low literacy could read his script. Presumably, all the others took similar care. They were able to copy their handwritten pamphlets using a gelatin-based old kind of printing press called a hectograph. Alexandra, along with her brothers and Bronstein, who was not yet Trotsky, ended up founding what they termed the South Russian Workers' Union, which saw itself along social democratic lines, nowhere near the policies of the Bolshevik that the Bolshevik Party would later espouse. The tasks for the South Russian Workers' Union were endless, even as their membership grew to around 200. The hectograph and the propaganda arm of the organisation had to be constantly moved until they finally got a permanent base in a blind man's apartment who did know what they were up to, but laughed that everywhere was prison to a blind man. Much of their energy was dedicated to research, developing contacts across Ukraine and putting out written propaganda. Though later a famous orator, Trotsky claims to have only given one speech during this time and he felt like a total loser (laughs) while doing it. We've no records of what Alexandra was specifically doing at this time. Regularly, spies would attempt to infiltrate the group, and at one point the leadership of the Union invited the spy back to their main base, sat him down and told the spy his entire life story. Like, I know where your mother is, I know where your that's father a, is. That's a damn is power a baller move. move. That's a power move. And that scared him off. So, still, though, the police were out in force around Nikolaev and Odessa, where the leadership often travelled to research or contact purposes. Again, Odessa, port city. They shouldn't have worried, been worried about that particular spy. In early 1898, Alexandra and the Union leadership were planning on splitting for a while until the heat died down. Too late. They were betrayed by an embedded member of the group, Nestorenko, who Trotsky had never thought to suspect. For an episode on A Woman of War, we're sure talking a lot about a man of war here. There is um, not a lot of records, and one of the only memos we have is Trotsky's. (laughs) Um... So I'm willing to take stuff from this period of face value, more or less, or he's over-exaggerating his role, because the later parts of the bio are the more important yeah. ones as propaganda and over-exaggeration, because they've written in part to counter Stalin's anti-Trotsky narrative. But at this point, I'm willing to believe he's under-exaggerating Alexandra as well, because as far as he knew at the point he was writing, she's still in Russia and she's still alive. Yep. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Thanks, Leon. This makes sense to me. Yeah. So, Leon Trotsky... I feel like such a wanker. <laughs> you are. It's okay. We oh, know this. Thank you. We love this about you. Leon Trotsky was held by Lenin to be one of the people who made the October Revolution slash coup happen. Trotsky was the tactician behind the Bolshevik takeover of key stations around Petrograd. He and Lenin shared a blanket on the night of the revolution, um, which to me just is like a symbolic thing of 
well, A, masculinity has evolved and how mm-hmm. men share things has changed. But also, Lenin is the head of the face of the... He's the head, shoulders and torso of, like, this socialist movement. And then he's also sleeping beside this man who led also led the revolution to mm-hmm. fruition. You can't understate, I think, how important Trotsky was to the Bolsheviks when they're on the outs after the July days. Trotsky is the one who turned it around after the Kornilov affair because he was the one who got the Red Army armed and organised. Um, the Soviet Union probably wouldn't have happened without Leon Trotsky, and the woman who brought that man to Marx was Alexandra Sokolovskaya. So you cannot understate mm-hmm. actually how important this woman is in many ways. It's like a cog in the wheel. Yeah. Like, take it out, it all changes. Yeah. Um, we can make an argument she's one of the most influential women in European history... But I don't want to do the whole want of a nail thing, but, like, no USSR, what happens with World War II, what mm-hmm. happens with the Nazis? You know, like, I I just don't... We know the coup couldn't have been pulled off without Trotsky. Yeah. Like, and without Alexandra, Trotsky wouldn't be Trotsky. Yeah. He wouldn't even be Trotsky, he'd be Bronstein. <laughs> <laughs> so Trotsky definitely wouldn't be yeah. Trotsky. Yeah. So the Bolsheviks couldn't have pulled off the coup... The coup? The coup. The coup. They all queued. Without Lenin and Leon Trotsky. And the end by Nicola, <laughs> age 28 and a bit. Okay, but we're getting ahead of ourselves again. Yeah. We're not there yet. So Nestorenko, don't worry about remembering that name, betrayed the South Russian Workers' Union. And on the 28th of January, 1898, old-style, presumably date. Oh, uh, who cares? We don't really know. Anyway, 200 members of the SRWU were arrested, including Alexandra Sokolskaya. I'm sorry. <laughs> Now, there's little information in English about what happened to the female arrestees of the SRWU, but we do know that Trotsky and his men who were arrested were held in various prisons, awaiting trial under disgusting conditions. And to summarise the issue, I quote here historian Mikhail Nekonovsky? Nenchny? I don't know. But Hannah hasn't seen this quote before, I thought it was very powerful. So sorry, sorry, Mikhail, for mispronouncing your name. Mikhail, Michael. Quote, the late imperial Russian prison and exile system is almost unequivocally considered to be the traditional embodiment of brutality, institutional inhumanity and injustice. End quote. Which, that checks out. Metal. Yep. We don't know how many prisons Alexandra was held in while awaiting her trial, but her status as a political prisoner was an increasingly common one for women. The concept of political prisoner was a relatively new one, and so they were mixed in with the general population. Prisoners were often kept in solitary confinement, denied food or basic access to hygiene, and lived in cells with vermin. However, because they were seen as regular criminals, they were often able to pass letters, books, and tap codes to each other through the wall with ideas and news. Prison was seen as a way station on the way to exile or release, which may also explain at least some of the foul conditions. Guards could be bribed to give care packages to prisoners, as Trotsky's mother did to get some fruit and jam to her son. Now, as many of you know, because people still make jokes jokes about Siberian exile, the Russians, both before and after the revolutions, practiced exile as a punishment. Oh, wait, sorry, Hannah, is that the right practice? No. Oh, fuck me sideways. Continue. (laughs) Unlike the British, who exiled their convicts to Australia, and Australia today, which thinks it's appropriate to deport, i.e. exile, criminals who do not hold Australian citizenship, even if they've lived in Australia their entire lives, The Russians didn't exile their prisoners to another country. They didn't have the colonial power for that. No, as we all know, the Russians tended to exile their prisoners out east, towards the freezing wastes, or burning hot, depending on the time of year, of Siberia. In one small way, the arrested SRWU members were lucky. Well, two ways. One, Trotsky did later say that sometimes being in prison was freeing, as it meant you knew you weren't going to be caught, and you could play leave room. And fucking bitter. Not really. (laughs) And two, as we previously discussed, Russia was a big, old anachronism compared to most of Europe and parts of Asia. Ditto their prison and exile system. Before a modernisation of the exile transport system in the 1880s, prisoners, men, women and children, were sent either from across the Ural Mountains on foot or put on big ships to sail to, from Odessa, to an island prison at Sakhalin. Typhus and other illnesses ravaged prisoners both before and during their journeys, and sometimes they were also forced onto overcrowded barges that led to further outbreaks. It was only in 1858 that some convicts were allowed to travel by railroad, because they'd only built the railroads just by then, probably. <laughs> in the 1880s, when penal reform finally reached Russia, there were some law changes, which allowed wives and children to tra- travel with their criminal husbands with the hope that these family units would civilise the waste of Siberia. So it was slightly better to be a prisoner after the 1858 reforms than before. That's why they're lucky. 
All relative, I assume, too. It's all like, relative. Hey, we haven't all got typhus. Back to Alexandra. Her time in prison was made more difficult as political arrests in Russia were increasing, swelling the prisoner ranks. It took two years, but in 1900, the four principal defendants were sentenced to four years in exile in Siberia. After hearing this, Alexandra and Bronstein got married in prison by a rabbi. They got married, they didn't meet in prison, I said it wrong on the TV, I'm really sorry. Everyone was fine with it, by the way. Regardless of the fact that Nicola, you know, clearly bullshits everything. I've never bullshitted anything <laughs> in my entire life, thank you very much. Um, so was Alexandra Jewish? I don't know. That's not helpful. But I, but I think so. It lines up with her dad sitting at a uni. It's from where they were from in Ukraine. And I honestly, but this is my like conjecture. This is yep. my real out of my plank. I think the rabbi was for Trotsky's mum because she wasn't super strict in practicing her faith on the farm where he grew up. Like she would just sometimes sit in the corner reading like scripture and stuff. But she was really distressed because her twenty-one-year-old son was in prison. Alexander was like twenty-six. Yep. Um, he doesn't mention it in detail in the biography, and Alexander's not telling. So Alexandra Lovna, as he calls her, is very minimised in the biography as we assume this is the protector. Um, so often she's actually just referred to as a close associate in the story. Mm. So I don't think they're ever in love, but they're probably very close. Yeah. Because it appears to be a marriage of convenience, but it might have evolved into something more briefly, or perhaps it was, you know, a way of proving the marriage was consummated because they did eventually have two daughters. Yep. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. 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 So upon being sent into exile, the new couple, the Bronsteins and their fellow prisoners, were loaded onto convict barges and sailed down the River Lena. Poetically, the very river from which Lenin would take his pen name. Probably. Trotsky called the river, quote, the Great River of the Exiled. It's here in the biography Trotsky does speak of Alexandra in glowing, if impersonal, terms. Quote, and welcome back, Dorian, as one of our voice actors. Alexandra Lvovna had one of the most important positions in the South Russian Workers' Union. Her utter loyalty to socialism and her complete lack of any personal ambition gave her an unquestioned moral authority. The work we were doing bound us closely together, and so we were married in the transfer prison. So, to me, it sounds like they just wanted to stay together. Yeah. And I'm, I'm willing to believe him. Yeah. I'm like, wh why would he and lie? They got divorced. And if there were, like, you know, confidants or... They worked well together, and you could take a spouse into exile. Then it kind of makes sense as well from that point of view to kind of be like, well, if we're married, we can go into exile together. We can keep doing shit for the cause in and Siberia. And that is exactly what Lennon did with his wife. Hmm. Yep, that's why they got married. Yep, check so, out. They were led off the barge in a small village called Uskut. Uskut basically means quote from the mouth of the Peat Bog River. Quote. So that should paint an image for you of the conditions. Um, and you probably can smell it already from here. Uh, they had been moved over 5,000 kilometres from Moscow and 5,600 kilometres away from Alexandra's hometown of Dnipro. Trotsky, who is still not yet Trotsky, also <laughs> described the village as... He's not Uskut. finished baking yet. <laughs> I've also included this passage to show the dude was actually a really good rider under all the bluster, so he set the scene. The village comprised about 100 peasant huts. We settled down in one of them on the very edge of the village. About us were the woods, below us the river. Farther north, down the Liana, there were gold mines. The reflection of the gold seemed to hover above the river. Ustkut had known lusher times, days of wild debauches, robberies and murders. When we were there, the village was very quiet, but there was still plenty of drunkenness. Life was dark and repressed, utterly remote from the rest of the world. At night, the cockroaches filled the house with their rustlings as they crawled over table and bed and even over our faces. From time to time, we had to move out of the hut for a day or so and keep the door wide open at a temperature of 35 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. In the summer, our lives are made wretched by midges. They even bit to death a cow which had lost its way in the woods. The peasants wore nets of tarred horsehair over their heads. In the spring and autumn, the village was buried in mud. To be sure, the country was beautiful, but during those years it left me cold. I hated to waste interest and time on it. I lived between the woods and the river, but I almost never noticed them. I was so busy with my books and personal relations. I was studying Marx, brushing the cockroaches off the page. Oh, I guess that means they were having a lot of sex. Sorry, mm -hmm. Trotsky. Damn. Of course, if Uskut was a suburb in or around an Australian capital city today, a hut there would be advertised. 
I should update these numbers to make more sense because they're not high enough. I'm hot... going to live in a box one day. <sighs> I'm going to live with you in your boat shed. <laughs> a hut there today will be advertised as for $800,000 and sell for a cool $1.1 million without an inspection. Alexandra and her husband continued their Marxist studies as well as staying in contact with other exiles. The River Lena was right on their doorsteps and boats went back and forth every day visiting all the other locations of their fellow exiles, dropping off more exiles. They also got up to some other stuff and soon their first daughter, Zenaida Bronstein, was born. They eventually applied for and received a transfer to Ilum, 250 versts or 266 kilometres east of Ustkut, to a place along the river. They had friends there and Trotsky had the chance to go work as a clerk for someone he describes in less than glowing terms in his biography. He lasted a month and a half. Trotsky was not, what you say, a people person and was sent or decided to return to Ustkut. So we went back to Ustkut. The cold was terrific. The temperature dropped as low as 35 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. Which is about 37 degrees. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure they'd figure that out. Thank you. The coachman had to break the icicles off the horse's muzzles as we drove along. I held a ten-month-old baby girl on my knees. We had made a fur funnel to put over her head, arranged so that she could breathe through it, and at every stop we removed her fearfully from her coverings to see if she was still alive. Nothing untoward happened on that trip, however. It sounds like a fun time. I know. It sounds mm. like a great time. Yeah. Why don't more people want to live in Siberia? <laughs> Maybe they should go back to the commune. <laughs> So interestingly, and perhaps to minimise Zinaida's presence in the book, as she was still alive when it was published, he only referred to her as, quote, a 10-month-old baby girl, end quote. Alexandra is also not mentioned to be on the journey, but they were together. Because this is we. Like, you know she's there. Yeah. yeah. After a brief pit stop at Ustkut, they got themselves transferred again to Verhonsk, further south of Ustkut, within screaming distance of Mongolia which did not exist at the time. No, it didn't exist at the time. So don't scream at Mongolia. Yeah. If, if a screaming distance, it's like cooey, but harder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The young family seemed to have had a better time in Verlins. The Bronstein's second daughter, Nina, was born, and there were more friends and fellow rebels there, including the future head of the Cheka, Felix Dzinski. It wasn't all good times, though. Many exiles despaired and became alcoholics or suicidal. Again, we don't know what Alexandra was doing, but we know what Trotsky was doing. And he held the only way to keep sane was to work hard and keep himself distracted. So he began to contribute to a small newspaper that had been started by old-hand exiles, whom he called the Populists. So I like to think Alexandra contributed to this. It would make sense, based on yeah. what we know about her. Yeah. So here's a good time as any to remark on the relative not-terribleness of the pre-Soviet exile <laughs> prisons. Sure, they sound miserable, and some exiles were s sentenced to hard labour if they committed further crimes during exile, like stabbing a police officer. But they had relative freedom and access to books, letters, and apparently a printing press. If they can make a newspaper, they've got a printing press. They do. Yep. These camps were places of political debate and pollination, galvanising the revolutionaries. What works? What doesn't work? After experiencing this, once they came to power, Lenin Trotsky, other Bolsheviks, and especially Stalin, turned around and went, hey, let's make a prison system that crushes the human spirit. And Rita, they did. We know what happens yeah. if you give people time to think. <laughs> but it wasn't enough. Thanks to the expanding train line, increasing access to modern printing presses in major cities, and the continual flow of political prisoners, Alexandra and her husband were in increasing contact with the Russian cities of the West, Moscow and St. Petersburg. <laughs> <laughs> Checks out. Yeah. Have you heard there's, there's a rumour in St. Petersburg? <laughs> Word was that a political change was in the air. There was an epidemic of escapes, either under prisoners' own power or the local peasants, who had been hanging out with these exiles for decades in some cases, and would happily or be bribed to be happily, sneak the exiles out in carts of hay, boats or sledges. The writers of the political paper Iskra also assisted in escapes. There weren't in all truth that many guards. The low chance of an exile surviving the Siberian wilderness, which included snow, woods, wild animals, rivers, a wild Rasputin floating around, was the fence and guards all in one. Alexandra and her husband clearly thought he was important enough to the promise of revolution that she was the one who told him that he had to go. At that time, we already had two daughters. The younger was four months old. Life under conditions in Siberia was not easy, and my escape would place a double burden on the shoulders of Alexandra Lvovna. But she met this objection with the two words, You must. Duty to the revolution overshadowed everything else for her, 
personal considerations especially. She was the first to broach the idea of my escape when we realised the great new tasks. She brushed away all my doubts. For several days after I had escaped, she concealed my absence from the police. From abroad, I could hardly keep up a correspondence with her. Then she was exiled for a second time. After this, we met only occasionally. Life separated us, but nothing could destroy our friendship and our intellectual kinship. So I, I want to tell you how they hit his escape. Yeah. So they just said, oh, he's got a really gross illness, sorry. And they just made a dummy and put it in his bed for like three or four days until they were like, we need to see him. And she was like, okay, you got us. <laughs> he's got COVID. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know he wouldn't have. That's not accurate. <laughs> Alexandra was a hard-ass dedicated revolutionary to the end of her days. Everything that has survived about her points to this being more or less the truth of what had happened. For the rest of their lives, Alexandra and her husband, who ended up in London and falling in love with a woman called Natalia, mostly kept in contact via letter. So Nicola, let's just forget Trotsky. Hannah, I can't believe you are going to say something okay, like so this. Okay, so shush. Okay. While we're not quite sure exactly what happened to Zenata or Nina, or Zena and Nina, as they're often known, that's cute. That's very cute. While Alexandra was a single mother Marxist in exile in Siberia. Some records state that Zena and Nina were put with their maternal grandparents, while others state that one went to Alexandra's sister and another stayed with Alexandra in Siberia. Alexandra stayed in exile, where presumably she was quite bored, but got a lot of reading done, and continued with Marxist debates around the campfires with her fellow revolutionaries. And then, January 1905 arrived. Short version. In January 1905, after a series of strikes around St. Petersburg, a peaceful crowd marched on the Winter Palace with a petition begging the Tsar for workers' rights, including an eight-hour working day, better working conditions and fairer wages. Soldiers of the Tsar, who was not at the Winter Palace at the time, fired upon the crowd, killing around 200 people. We don't know. There were many more injured and arrested, and understandably, the people of St. Petersburg, and then the surrounds, and then the rest of the Russians, felt their Tsar had abandoned them. Mass strikes ensued, along with peasant unrest and military mutinies. By October, the Tsar was forced to make some concessions, including establishing a Duma, basically a parliament, and giving the Russian people some civil liberties. This is the relevant bit. These reforms led to some prisoners being freed, including Alexandra, her daughters, or daughter, and she returned from exile, presumably heading for St. Petersburg, because that's where she resettled later. We don't actually know. I would have gone the hell out of Dodge, but that's just me. Yep. She had to resettle because the brief period of freedom brought about by the Tsar's reforms quickly ended. Nicholas II had never wanted to give up any authority in the first place and was quick to smother those reforms, quicker than a well-placed fire blanket can smother a stove fire. Form exiles were sent back to exile, including Alexandra. Yeah. So this could have also been when they then sent the kids to live in Yanovka with Trotsky's parents. It's hard to say. So Trotsky's parents would mostly raise Zena and Nina while their son was off globetrotting with his new wife and eventually their two sons. They did take Zena overseas at one point to meet Trotsky in 1906 and we'll put some of those pictures on the website. So Alexandra would stay in exile, as far as we know, for the next 12 years. Damn. So let us now turn our Fergus to Zena and Nina while Alexandra waits for the revolution she believes will come. Zena, the eldest, grew up very much like her dad, an ardent Marxist, later an ardent Trotskyist, and incredibly strong-willed. Once Alexandra and Trotsky divorced, Zenaida probably went to live with Alexandra's sister. I think it's Elizabeth, but in Russian. Yelizaveta. <laughs> I've only seen this in a couple of places, but also they mentioned she only had one sister, but now I've heard that she has two. It's hard to say. May also be a sister in law. Mm -hmm. One of those things. Could be a close friend. Yeah. Zena and Nina were politically interested. How could they not be? Their mother is an ardent Marxist and their dad is Trotsky. <laughs> um, but however, they were only briefly reunited with their father when he returned from his international exile in 1917 during the Russian revolutions. Again, during their brief appearances in his biography, Zena and Nina go unnamed, but Trotsky fondly describes them coming to his speeches where the audience was always packed and enraptured by his talking, of course. And then everyone applauded. And then everybody <laughs> clapped. Like, even babies stopped suckling at their mother's breasts to listen. <laughs> it's like, what do you say? <laughs> really? Oh, Trotsky. It's the symbolism. And um, they would, like, his daughters would, like, reach out to him through the crowd and he'd try and reach back. And they once they managed to grasp hands and then the tide of people carried them away. 
Um, as Alexander and Trotsky did keep in touch via letters, she even managed to send him a bunch of his Marxist writings from Siberia. So again, so lax compared to the later Gulags. Mm -hmm. um, I also have to assume he wrote letters to Zena and Nina. A couple of those have survived from later in life. Zena was married twice, first to a dude with a great name, Zakhar Borisovich Moglin. They had one daughter, Alexandra. <laughs> Please! <laughs> one. No. It makes me assume two things. One, Alexandra had not raised her daughters in the Jewish faith, assuming she was of Ashkenazic Jewish heritage, because in that group, you don't name children after living people because it's seen as sort of wishing ill will on the older person. And that's the more common kind of Jewish person you get in Europe, anyway. I mean... Another interpretation: Nina hated her mother. <laughs> Wanted it to it wish ill on her. <laughs> My second point was Zena respected oh, her mother, okay. but now three, she may have hated her. <laughs> I take it back. Zena took her husband's name, then divorced him in the 1920s and married Platon Ivanovich Volkov. They had one son, Vesovod, better known as Seva. Seva. I've never known exactly how to say that, but he was even known later in life as Esteban. Which what? tells you a little bit about where they end. He grew up in Mexico. Oh, okay. It's so strange. It's such a strange scattered family. Hmm. Volkov was a leader in the Trotskyist opposition movement to Stalin's control in the later 1920s. And obviously for him, things would not end well. Nina was also political, but we know less about her th than Zena. She married a man named Nevelson. Nina was also ill for much of her life and suffered from tuberculosis, which, I mean, I feel like growing up in Siberia... Wouldn't help. That. But you don't get it from just like, oh, but you're in like clothes confined. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I feel like that's not good. Yeah. Not good. When I found out that, like, you can get it from kissing, it's like, well, that wrecked Moulin Rouge for me. <laughs> not really. I fucking love that movie. So her husband, Man Nevelson, was. Uh, I said he was a man named Nevelson. <laughs> his name is Man Nevelson. Is his name actually Man? Oh my god. <laughs> man Nevelson was also a leader in the Trotskyist movement in the Soviet Union in the 1920s. And he, too, would be detained, exiled, and executed. He also played a role, a key role, as a commission commissar in the Russian Civil War under Trotsky's command. Nina and her husband also had two children, Leo and Volina, who would eventually be raised by Alexandra, who would also raise Zita's eldest daughter. Comma. Theoretically, Leo could be named after Trotsky, since it's close to Leon, um, and sometimes Trotsky was nicknamed the Little Lion. I mean, it would work, though. Each sister gets to name one kid after a parent. We legitimately know very little else about Alexandra Sokolovskaya's life from her second exile in 1905 to her return to St. Petersburg, now Petrograd, in 1917 following the February Revolution. There are probably sources not yet in English. Um, maybe she had sources written about her under different names. Yeah. So there's about five names yep. that you can look under and different spellings as well. Mm. Um... I actually wrote most of this with articles Google translated from Russian and Spanish. <laughs> um, so I'd not fault her if all she did in Siberia for those 12 years was survive. That's all you I can mean, do. Yeah. That's all you can do sometimes. And she did. She survived. Yep. Yeah. And that's impressive in itself. Yeah. In February 1917, the combination of 300 years of Romanov rot, the pressures of World War I, a cold winter, and a march over bread on International Women's Day led to the Russian Revolution and the promise of a bright new future for Russia. Many political prisoners, including probably Alexandra, were freed, again, and reunited with their families as the former empire waited under the new provisional government for Russia's first truly free and fair general elections in November. Keep reading. <laughs> Those elections would never, and arguably have never, come. Alexandra probably had little to nothing to do with the Bolsheviks' inner circle's plans to overthrow the provisional government and it's not clear if she did actually officially join the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks had relatively modern views on the role of women, which was more in line with seeing them as potential workers on par with men. But key Bolshevik Alexandra Kolontai was a proponent of free love and a form of, wealth, of a welfare state that would stop women being left to raise children alone if their husbands left them. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Imagining this, as a coming, this coming as part of a socialist revolution... As society changed, so would the family unit. So what we're saying is Alexandra Sokolovskaya's status as a divorced single mum wouldn't have had an effect on her ability to join the Bolsheviks if she wanted. Keyword, if she wanted, I guess. We there. just don't know. Yeah. And if she had, they, the pur they would have purged the records to be like, Trotsky's ex-wife? Nope, she wasn't in mm -hmm. there either. Yep. Yeah. Regardless, upon her slightly more permanent return to the new socialist state, Alexandra got herself a position working at the new commissar, 
Humsmal, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but rolls off a lot better than the All-Union Leninist Youth Communist League. Beautiful. <laughs> it's sometimes misdescribed as the youth wing of the Communist Party. Um, we might have, we, we did come up against the Komsomol in the Soviet night, which is... Yeah? We did. W- yeah. Were they in the Komsomol, some of them? I don't remember how we came up with against the Komsomol. But I'm pretty sure one was, or one, like, talked to the Komsomol. Yeah, I think... That's a long time ago. It's a very long time ago. But it happened. Listen to the episode. You'll figure it out. Yeah, you'll figure it out. But technically, they were separate entities. So the Communist Party, which was the Bolsheviks. And the Komsomol, not the same thing. But they were. So the Komsomol was key to Lenin's vision of how to build a successful Soviet state. Get the kids and you've got the parents. Every successful authoritarian regime knows that. Though the Komsomol was open to both genders, they had special difficulty getting rural women and girls to join up. Perhaps ironic, considering Alexandra's roots with the Narodnik cause. At some point, Alexandra left the Komsomol and began to work as a teacher, apparently of history. Interestingly, Trotsky's second wife, Natalia, was also working for the Department of Education in the Historical Monuments and Artifacts Department. (laughs) Walking down the hallway, Alexandra, Natalia. I like to think they just would have been friends. I think they would have just been friends. Yeah. So for a few years, it all seemed the suffering and exile had been worth it. After the rough start that is the Russian Civil War, Lenin, the Communist Party, and his Commissar for War, Leon Trotsky, began to build the ideal socialist state. This included developing the Komsomol, bringing back elements of capitalism through Lenin's new economic policy, and repairing infrastructure that wasn't that great to start with, but had been damaged severely during the conflict. And then Lenin died without leaving a clear heir. Though Trotsky was the heir apparent, the grey blur that was Joseph Stalin had risen to unexpected levels of power and influence in the party. To cut a very long, complex story short, because this is Women of War, not Nicola Holt's People Hostage to talk about Trotsky Week. (laughs) That's every week. Stalin outmaneuvered Trotsky really easily, because though Trotsky could hold the crowd's attention, he was a really good speaker. He was a really... Just ask the babies. He was a really shit dude to hang out with one-on-one and didn't see the need for allies. He was so politically focused. He didn't Mm -hmm. actually see that politics is made up of people. Mm -hmm. Stalin also tapped into other Bolsheviks' lust for power, including Trotsky's own brother-in-law, Lev Kamenev, who'd married Trotsky's sister, Olga. In addition, Trotsky was very dismissive of Stalin until it was too late. He was arrogant and did not take him seriously. Stalin and his allies did use Trotsky's Jewish heritage as a way of twisting him to be a sort of greedy. Why did you give me this part? Because I couldn't figure out how to write it. Thank you. Okay, so like, he's basically depicted as like using anti-Semitic tropes as a sort of anti-Christ of communism bringing capitalist greed upon the pure socialist state. Yeah. And what exactly... So they signed up for anti-Semitism 101 course. Yeah, and they were like, this sounds like a great idea. Yeah, they're like, this, yeah. we'll use this. Sounds so, great. And again, Trotsky probably overblows it a little bit but he was like, I wasn't even fucking practicing Judaism. I yeah. never practiced Judaism. I think he was even bar mitzvah. Um... Did we cover why he changed his name? He just needed a pen name. Okay. Sorry, like, I just... Yeah, there's nothing... It's like Lenin as well. Both Lenin and... Oh, no. Actually, when he was escaping, they had to make a fake passport. Mm-hmm. And they were like, here's one that says Trotsky. And he was like, sick, made a new signature up, got in the cart under the hay, off he went. And again, Lenin as well. He was like, yeah, here's my pen name, Lena. Lenin, that'll do. Yep. They never thought about it. Fair. And then he was called Leon Trotsky for the rest of his life. Fair. And even now, it's like, hey, Lev, I love freaking out year 12 history students going, okay, you know about Lenin, Stalin? Yep, yep, yep. What about Lev Bronstein? And they get this look <laughs> of horror. Like, who the fuck is this person? I'm like, just kidding. It's Trotsky. You're a cruel, cruel woman. I am. Um, so, yeah. finally, there were dueling ideologies. For his entire life, more or less, Trotsky held that socialist revolution, in order to be permanent and successful, had to be international. And he always hoped that other states would throw off their chains and follow the young Soviet Union's lead. Stalin was more of a realist in this regard, and floated the idea of socialism in one country, or rather socialism, in one country, and all the other countries were controlled by a force or threat. One of those is more practical than the other. By 1926-1927, Stalin's power was cemented but not absolute, and this is why in late 1927, Trotsky, his wife Natalia, and one of their sons were sent into exile, first to Kazakhstan and then from the Soviet Union entirely. Okay, Nikola, again, women of war, not Trotsky of war. Trotsky of war. (laughs) (laughs) This is relevant. Okay. Okay, okay. So during this period, the Trotskyist opposition to Stalin's bloc had kept the fight up, but it was fruitless. One by one, and then ten by ten, Trotskyists were being picked up, arrested and exiled, or shot. This included Zina's second husband, who was exiled in 1928, as well as Nina's husband. 
Tragically, in 1920, another blow struck Alexandra, Zena, and Nina, where Nina succumbed to tuberculosis and died. This Poor is Nina. when, yeah, this is when Nina's daughter and son, Valina and Leo, went to live with Alexandra. So Trotsky argued in his book that Nina's treatment was lackluster due to her status as his daughter, which is a pretty fair assumption. Mm. Um, letters to and from Nina for Trotsky were also held up, and his last letters never reached her before she died, and he was always like, they fucking didn't let her see them. That's sad. He was very angry about that. Fair. Um, similar things may have also been done to Alexandra and Zena. Like, they might not have been told she was dying, mm-hmm. might not have been allowed to see her. Um, we don't know, but they might have been prevented from comforting her as she died. So despite these terrible losses, Alexandra continued to be a leader of the Trotskyist opposition in Petrograd. One revolutionary who escaped, Victor Serge, recalled Alexandra fondly, saying, quote, Alexandra Lovna Bronstein was the last word in common sense and honesty, which honestly matches with how Trotsky describes her in his bio, written around the same time. Sergei later claimed that he and Alexandra were basically only the Trotskyists still at the only Trotskyists still at liberty in late 1928 in Petrograd. So this may have been because by this point she was friends with Lenin's widow Nadezhda Krupskaya, best buds with the old boss's wife. But that's only a guess. Yeah, we're not sure why Alexandra was still at liberty when her son's-in-law had been taken in. They were active men in the opposition movement, and one had served with Trotsky as a hero in the Civil War. Perhaps this was why Zina's second husband, who'd been arrested in 1928, was returned to his family in 1931. It was around this time that Zina decided to take her son, Vesevlod, to visit Trotsky, when he, where he was currently living with Natalia. So why did she only take one son, who we're going to call Siva, from now on? So she was only allowed to take one child. It was a tactic to ensure Soviet citizens would return. But Zina wasn't just a regular citizen of the Soviet Union. She was the eldest daughter of Stalin's nemesis. While in Berlin, receiving treatment for her mental illness, Zina was prone to depression. You know, mysterious. Who why knows why? would she She's have She's got any... no reason for that. Why? In February 1932, she received word that hers and Siva's Soviet citizenship had been revoked, and so they wouldn't be able to return to the Soviet Union. In addition to other stresses, such as feeling that Trotsky did not respect her opinions, as he did with her half-brother Lev Sedov, which was pretty true, the separation from her daughter and second husband, Zina was an ardent communist, her mother's daughter to the very end. After another year in Berlin as a stateless and single mother, she sent Siva to, Siva to stay with friends and committed suicide. Siva would eventually end up being sent to Mexico to live with Trotsky. He would not be reunited with his biological sister Alexandra until 1988, when they received special permission as Alexandra was dying of cancer. It had been so long that Siva had forgotten all of his Russian, and that was the only language that Alexandra spoke. Zina's death nearly destroyed Alexandra, and she put the blame at Trotsky's feet, writing to him, quote, All this comes from you, from the fact that you find it so difficult to show your feelings. You, her father, could have saved her, end quote. This is an accurate read of Trotsky's character. He rarely praised any of his children or anyone, but he was devastated upon hearing of Zina's death. I don't think we can blame just Trotsky's character for Zina's suicide, um, but it kind of helped. Mm. Neither could the continued trauma, her stateless status, her recently dead sister, and uh, and uh. Why would you be depressed? Everything's fine. It's fine. So, this small glimpse into Alexandra's surviving words shows us that she was very fierce and opinionated in the midst of grief. Following Zina's exile, Alexandra took over care of Zina's daughter, comma, Alexandra. So obviously by this point, Stalin's power over the Soviet Union was near absolute. Like many dictators, though, he was paranoid, obsessed with tracking down his nemesis, Trotsky, and Trotsky's supporters. Then, in 1934, a man named Sergei Kirov was assassinated. Kirov was an ally of Stalin and a popular well-known member of the party. On the official record, he was killed by a mentally ill man named Leonid Nikolaev, who seemed to have a paranoid delusion Kirov was sleeping with his wife. It's weird, though, that the Soviet secret police, the NKVD, were not on the ball to protect such a popular and well-known politician. So strange. This is, this is the Night of Long Knives, basically, mm. but Stalin style. Stalin, after helping carry Kirov's casket, used his death to launch the Moscow show trials. Which aren't like the ones at the Melbourne show. Thanks. That's good. That's good. Uh, Just a little joke for all you, you <laughs> Melbourne show fans out there. Lighten up the humour. Um, and the First Great Purge. Stalin launched the Moscow show trials and then the First Great Purge. The show trials were Kafka-esque kangaroo court affairs that led to old Bolsheviks and hardline communists denouncing each other, 
claiming to be in contact with Trotsky, blaming Trotskyists for failures of Stalin's five-year plans, all in desperate attempts to not be exiled and probably executed. There were mass arrests of real and imagined enemies of Stalin, i.e. Trotskyists. In 1935 and 1936, Zina's first and second husbands were murdered. Nina's husband, Man Nevelson, was also arrested and exiled, presumably killed. Olga Kamineva, Trotsky's sister and fellow communist, was also shot in 1936. And Alexandra Sokolovskaya was no longer one of the few free Trotskyists in Leningrad. She was arrested and exiled in 1935, probably without trial. Just as in 1900 and 1905, Alexandra was sent out to Russia's eastern regions, further than ever before to the modern Kolnia region, Kolnia? region, further north than Uskut. It's thought that this is where the polar bear originally <laughs> comes from, if you want to know how cold it is. Alexandra was last seen alive at Kolma labour camp by Nadezhuk Joffe, the daughter of Adolf Joffe, a close ally and supporter of Trotsky. Nadezha and her mother, Maria, were both arrested and exiled to labour camps as Adolf had committed suicide in 1927 after suffering a painful illness. But due to the decades of cover-ups and secrecy, we know relatively little about the gulags of Stalinist Russia. We do not know how many people died, nor how many people were imprisoned, and often not even the circumstances of their deaths. The role of gender in the gulags has also gone relatively unaddressed until recently. All the accounts we've had access to of gulags in Kolyma were written by men, including by Valam Shalomov. Shalomov wrote a series of short reflections on life in the gulags, including a list called What I Saw and Learned in the Kolyma Camps. We won't read all 46 points, but we will share some that are relevant to what we're talking about with Alexandra today. What I Saw and Learned in the Kolyma Camps Number 1. The Extraordinary Fragility of Human Nature, of Civilization a human being would turn into a beast after three weeks of hard work, cold, starvation, and beatings. Number six. I learned that Stalin's triumphs were possible because he slew innocent people. Had there been an organized movement, even one-tenth in number, but organized, it would have swept Stalin away in two days. Number 23. I saw that women are more honest and selfless than men. There was not a single husband at Kolima who came after his wife, but wives did come. Many did. Number 31. I learned that the world should be divided not into good and bad people, but into cowards and non-cowards. Ninety-five percent of cowards are capable of any meanness, lethal meanness, after life-threatening. Number 32. I am convinced. The camp is a negative experience entirely. If one spent but an hour there, it would be an hour of moral corruption. The camp has never given anything to anyone, and never could. Everyone, both prisoners and civilians, are corrupted by the camp. Number 36. I learned to plan one day ahead. No further. She was 64 years old and had spent around 18 years of her life in prison, in exile or in labour camps. One Russian historian has recently claimed that Alexandra actually survived the camp and lived quietly into the mid-1960s, but there's no evidence of this and it seems highly unlikely. As Stalin said in the early 1930s, ordering his bureaucrats to strip Zina, Siva, Natalia, Lev and Trotsky of their Soviet citizenship, quote, for him it's all over, and the same for his family, end quote. That's the quote, yeah. It's highly unlikely Trotsky knew of his ex-wife's fate, though he could probably have imagined that he and his um, wife Natalia, when their son, who was still in Russia, was executed, they had no idea what had happened to him, but mm. they knew what potentially could have, and it yeah. tortured them. Trotsky himself was assassinated in August 1940. It took until March 7th, 1990 for Alexandra Sokolovskaya to be posthumously rehabilitated. Today she is mostly remembered as Trotsky's first wife, the one he ditched in Siberia, but without her influence, the modern world would almost certainly look quite different. Just a bit different. Just a little different. Any thoughts, Hannah? Fuck Stalin. Yeah! That's but, you know, that's always my thought, yeah. so... Like, fuck style. That's not new. Yeah. That yeah. was great. 
really? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay, we got the stuff. We did a good job. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Hannah, would you like to say some words, actually? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That's my words. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Welcome back. Welcome. I feel like we might have a few new listeners. Yeah, I think Maybe. we have a few new listeners. Welcome. I, I don't know why. Thanks Thanks for our reviews. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, everyone was really lovely. and um, Everyone who's given us an Apple review, gold star. Gold star. For you life. Don't the <laughs> <laughs> um, so hopefully we'll be back next fortnight. Um, we're trying to be more kind to ourselves because it's been a two-year pandemic and um, many other things are going yeah, on. Yeah. So we'll be back probably in two weeks. We'll yep. keep you updated. And thank you for all your continued support and wonderful responses. Yep, come work. find us on social media at Women of War Pod everywhere. Or www.womenofwarpod.com. No, no, just .com. Just .com. Sorry. Come, come tell us your thoughts about everything. We'd love to. We love suggestions of women. We love hearing from everybody. We love Bob. We love Mary. We love Ash's dad. We do. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We love all of our listeners. Yep. Okay. Cool. I'm happy. Yeah. Are you happy? I'm happy. Awesome. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. You seem like you know a good smock when you see one. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> Let's just end Let's there. Let's not do that. Let's end there.